Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Rhonda, and today I have a dear friend of mine, Kate, who is also one of my clinicians that works at my office. I have asked her to come on here and talk all the things therapy and just give more insight on what it's like for us as therapists when we're in session with you as a client. So Kate, thanks so much for coming on first thing in the morning and joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited too. So if anyone knows anything about us, I know that we have too much fun at work. Um, you and I have known each other almost five years in, in the therapy world. Yep. So you and I are really connected professionally and personally. Um, so I'm really excited for today because I really just want to have fun. And I thought you would be a perfect person to talk about kind of all of the fears and like the stigmas and the questions that a lot of clients sometimes ask us, but I know usually don't ask us. Um, so I think it would just be fun to kind of tell, tell everyone and have an explanation as far as like what therapy is really like. And also some of those silly questions that I know we get asked. And for us as clinicians, we sometimes will like laugh and giggle, but I think that where they come up so often, people don't realize that like some of them all have the same fears. Absolutely. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So first question, what, from your experience, and you've been doing this for five years, right? Because we first started working Mm -hmm. together right as you graduated. Okay. So in your experience, like, what would you say are some of the common fears or anxieties that people have coming to therapy? What are their common fears and anxieties? Yeah. Well, I think, wow. I mean, can you imagine coming and sitting down and spilling your entire life story and all of your insecurities and vulnerabilities and some of your deepest, darkest secrets to a complete stranger, right? I mean, that's a lot to expect somebody to come and sit down and sit in front of somebody and just spill, right? I mean, you're showing your complete underbelly to somebody. That's a lot to expect of somebody. And so when somebody comes down and sits in front of me, I hope they understand and understand I understand that they're going to have a lot of anxiety about what they're about to share. Right. Yeah. And I know like we've talked about this before because when I started therapy, like I put it off personally for a while before I actually went to therapy. And so like, I can relate to a lot of people in the sense that like, I know none none of us really want to go to therapy. And so when you actually make that commitment or you make that effort, like I always tell people that really, truly finding a therapist and sitting and going to your first session to me is the hardest thing because it's a lot of the unknown you. And I think so many people still have that idea of what therapy is of, you know, the older person, older therapist sitting across from them with a clipboard, just being like, oh yeah, how does that make you feel? And at least at our Mm -hmm. office, like I know none of us have that as our first session. Yeah. And I think a lot of people also wonder about judgments and shame, or um, even if people aren't saying it, what are they thinking behind the lens? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever get clients that ask you, like, I always in the first session, usually like if they start to cry, do you ever have clients that will sit from you and be like, is it okay that I cry? Yeah. Or they apologize (laughs) profusely for apologizing Yeah, all the time. time. I get that a lot. Yeah. Or I get people that are crying. Yeah. Yeah. They're like terrified to cry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they feel bad for using our tissues. That's my favorite when clients are like, I'm so (laughs) sorry. I used all your tissues. I'm like, Literally you're in therapy. You should be crying. Yeah. 
you know, one of my favorite things to say is that tears are something that we honor because they're a part of our healing process. You know, they're yeah. absolutely something that we should never apologize for. Yeah. But that is one of the number one things that I hear when people come into therapy. Yeah. And it breaks my heart too. Cause like, I, I mean, I know when I've cried in therapy, I'm like, oh, this, I don't like this. I'm sorry that you have to sit here and watch me cry. So I get that there's just that stigma and the shame towards, towards those fears. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think? Like when clients are crying in front of you, like, I know that some of it is what you said of like that fear and the shame. So a lot of clients think that we're judging them or making fun of them secretly for crying. Typically, like if you can explain, like when clients are crying, typically what's your thought process like? Honestly, my only thought process is empathy for one. Um, and part of me is trying not to cry because there's that biological response that like I want to cry mm. with somebody. And so I'm trying not to cry even now, like talking about thinking about somebody crying. Right. So like there's that strong empathy of watching somebody who's going through so much pain and suffering that I feel their pain and suffering. And so that's the only thing that I'm thinking about at that time when they're crying. Right. And there's something they apologize to kind of ruin the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's really all I'm thinking about. Yeah. Like there's sometimes you just want to sit with them and hug them where you're like, it's okay. I'll just mm -hmm. hold you and you can cry. And, you know, I think yeah. in the first session, you're like, if the therapist did that, you'd be creepy, but that is like, those are moments that I know I think about. Yeah. That's all I think about. Yeah. Uh, I think that like one of the, the main questions that I get usually in the second session is, um, like they want me to give them a timeline, right. It's like, how long is this going to take? is a common question that I get that people feel like they come in and, and I can give them like, because we came up with our treatment plan. I think sometimes they feel like because we came up with our goals that then I can be like, cool in six months, you'll be accomplished and you'll be done with therapy. And so I think that that's a common question of asking how long this is going to take. Um, another question I get a lot is, you know, in regards to like confidentiality, because at our office, we have like forms of emergency contacts and that. And so people feel hesitant to really, or like they want further understanding of who we're disclosing this information to. So like usually in the first couple of sessions, people will be like, if I tell you this and whatever that this is, it can be anything from I smoke marijuana to I have an abusive partner. If I disclose something like that, that's kind of frowned upon or illegal, who are you going to tell or where does that information go? So I usually don't get those questions at all, really? but I'm That's more than surprising. happy to answer questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, when it comes to timeline wise, I am one of those people that will always say, I will never give you a timeline. Like this can take from six months to six years, depending on how much effort you want to put in, but also it can take from, you know, we can take, um, a couple of sessions or a couple of months to be doing some serious intensive EMDR work. But then after that, we can totally shift gears and com completely working on something completely different, or we can be doing a lot of maintenance work, or it can take us a year to do a lot of stabilization and feeling really confident before we even touch on doing some intensive trauma work, which can take a really long time. Um, and so that really varies with a lot of people. Um, and so I really stay away from giving anyone any sort of a timeline, but I typically don't really get that question. Um, I do tell people that I really like to get to know them really, really, really well for the first month and a half, two months before I would get a good general sense of how long I'm going to be seeing them for, because I 
think I need to know them pretty well before giving them a good idea. Um, does that answer that question? Mm -hmm. I just typically don't usually get that question. Yeah. That fascinates me. I get that all the time. Like I would say three out of five assessments that I do, they come in the second session to where I'm like, Hey, Kate, do you have any questions for me? I know last time we went over a lot, like now is your chance if, if, as things settled, if you have any questions for me and yeah, I would say nine times out of 10, they're like, how long is this going to take? And it's all like, I'm just prepared for it usually in those first couple of sessions. So that blows my mind that you don't ever get asked that. Usually my second session is, okay, now that we've done, you know, that first, so that first session, maybe this is something you know, to, to share and talk about people who haven't come to therapy before who are listening. Um, this first session is a ton of questions. It's a huge background and it's a lot of facts and information and it's <laughs> about your entire life, right? Um, it can be. And so it's a lot of um, background information. And so when I, when people come in for that second session, I say, okay, so now that we've done all of that, now what, right? Where do you want to start? And then that's usually where people kind of come in and they kind of just dump everything mm. that's going on in their current life. And so I think that's where people feel the most comfortable to just really just let everything go. And that's where we start with work. Mm. And so I don't think that people are really thinking about a timeline. That's interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah. Just the differences. Yeah. Different approaches, different approaches, different people. How, so like what you were saying of the first couple of sessions, you get to know them. So what would be some of the like questions or some of the like interventions you would start with for a client getting to know them? Like, what would that look like? The first things that I, I really look for, and it may seem very simple, but it really comes down to, I want to know what their days really do look like. I want to know, um, what does it look like when you look up, when you wake up in the morning? And I'm not just talking, I wake up in the morning and I make my coffee and I get up and I go to work, but, and I do need to know that because I know that you're getting up and you're going to work, but I also want to know that what does it look like in your head? What does it look like? What are you thinking about yourself? What are you thinking about the world? How do your emotions feel? Um, I want to really feel like I know what your world looks like. I kind of view it as, I call it an Alice in Wonderland approach is when I am going in and I'm viewing kind of like I'm entering, I'm going down into this tree and I'm entering into this whole new world. And I'm now viewing a client's world as they see it. So I've left my world behind, mm. but I, in order for me to be able to now see a client's world as they see it, I need as much information as I can. And so for those first couple of sessions, a lot of it is really getting to know all of those details and really getting to know um, how they see it, how they live their life. And it really creates a deeper understanding about not just how they view it, but how they live it and have a greater empathetic understanding of them. Yeah. Just recognizing patterns, getting to know them. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems pretty basic, but I know in session, like it seems like we talk about it and it seems basic, but then I know in session, like we, especially at our office, like we dive deeper. So we peel back those layers pretty fast, but fast, not in the sense, like, I think that can scare people of, oh my gosh, I get in and they just dive deep. I always tell people the first couple of sessions too, of, I want to get to know you. And I want to know the skeletons in your closet, but I also know in an hour session every week, like a, I have to build that trust with you and you have to feel comfortable and safe coming here. But also like, there's a lot of skeletons that we've usually been hiding for years and years and years that you and I have to go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just different. That's crazy yeah. that it's different approaches. Yeah. So then when you, 
It is super important. And I think that that's where a lot of people, you know, I, and that's one thing I always get to is people come into where they're like, I know I need to be here, but I really don't want to, like, I know that I need to work on this, but I don't know if I want to change it. And even clients coming into those, like having those conversations with me, I think gives me more compassion for them because it's reassuring to them that like, I'm not going to just rip your bandaid off and make this wound bleed. Like, I know you don't want to be here. I always joke with clients of, I know that none of my clients really wake up in the morning being like, yes, I get to see Rhonda and I get to go to therapy today. Most of the time they're like, oh shit, can I, like, do I have to go today? Will Rhonda cancel? Like I was, and sometimes I've had clients come in to where, you know, sometimes they're angry and they're like, I didn't want to come today. I was hoping you would just cancel. And I'm like, oh, let's talk about that. Like, why, what are you hiding from? Or why didn't you want to come in? And, you know, I think we joke in the office, like those are always the best sessions for us because those are the days that you need to be there the most. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we know figuring out why, what is it either, what is it that you're avoiding or in those sessions, especially I think I found in those sessions when you don't want to be there, but you end up coming and doing EMDR and they end up processing so much more in those sessions and they learn so much and they take away so much more from themselves and that they're so powerful, right? Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And I know, I know this, but tell everyone listening, like, at our office, we're very, very lucky because we like the office is smaller. And so we kind of get to connect or at least interact to some degree with all of the clients. And so each of us kind of get to see how we are with each of our clients. And I know like we've joked before about, I just heard you laugh the entire session. Like, did you even do therapy with your (laughs) client? But I think that that's one thing people don't really realize is that we build a relationship with these people on so so many different levels. And obviously like we are bound to professional boundaries with them, but like we really truly see people at their best and their worst. And yet we can have fun with them. We can make them laugh. You know, we kind of gain these like inside jokes with, with our clients because usually we spend so much time with them. So from your perspective, like what, like, I guess a simple version is like, could you like, do you connect with your clients on a different level, like obviously therapeutic and professionally, but like on your side as your therapist, like, do they get to know us and do, do they get to know you and see you in the various forms? Well, I think, I mean, the short answer is yes. I think all of my clients will be able to say that they know me to an extent. They, I mean, I have to have professional um, boundaries and there has to be barriers there. And there comes an extent where knowing details or information about your therapist not just becomes not helpful, but can become a hindrance to your treatment. And so that's why you don't know your therapist very well. But I think that a lot of our clients know us pretty well. They know a lot about our personality. They know the things that we like, the things that we don't like. We all can laugh pretty well together. We do hear other clinicians laughing with their clients. <laughs> I know that I laugh with a lot with my clients. Um, and, you know, there are some clients, you know, that you, you become really close with, especially clients that you've been seeing for years that you're like, mm-hmm. we weren't professional and this wasn't a professional relationship. We would be really good friends. Yes. Um, 
and it's really, it can be really difficult. And I think that there are a lot of therapists out there that would agree. Yeah. And I've had that, like, I can speak personally, like I've had clients come into where they have disclosed of like, Rhonda, I really wish that like, I, you weren't my therapist so I could go hang out with you. And like, I know half the time I'm like, yeah, the feelings are mutual, but there's sometimes where it's, yeah, you, you, you don't get to be that friend to them. You don't get to give them their personal side like that. And, and because we have to maintain those boundaries, the one, one of my favorites, I think is when clients come in and like, I, I don't know if it's our energy. I don't know if it's just us, but I know clients will come in and like, they will call me out if it's like, I'm having a bad day, or even if I'm just tired or off, sometimes I'll be like, how are you? How are things going? And people are like, uh, no, how are you? And it's funny. Cause I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 not talking about me. Like I'm here for you. And clients sometimes have told me, especially after my dad died. Like when I came back to work those first two weeks, clients literally would not disclose anything. Cause they were like, I literally came to see if you were okay. And like, again, ethically, professionally, I know that those sessions can't be run like that. And it's usually not, but it's, it's, I guess it's humanizing, right. To see that, like it, it is in a way mutual, even though they, we know so much more of their lives than they ever know about ours. Yeah, absolutely. I know that after I was out for medical leave last year, I had some of the same experiences coming back for myself and yeah. having clients just be like, no, I want to make sure that you're doing okay. And having that mutual exchange. And sometimes that's, you know, it's also important for us to know that we're cared for and seen as humans too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we still have to maintain those professional boundaries, but they're definitely underneath. There's some, some deeper connections that we feel with a lot of our clients. Yeah. What would you say, like, if I'm a client wanting to come to therapy, what would be some key points or advice you'd have to kind of make the therapy process easier for me as a client? Um, for one, one of the best things I've ever heard was find a therapist that you feel comfortable being uncomfortable with, meaning that it takes time for you to find the right therapist. And it has to be a therapist that you feel really comfortable knowing that you're going to be uncomfortable with, and that's okay with that. You, and you're okay with that. Um, know that you're going to find somebody who is going to challenge you, not just validate you. Mm, yeah. Um, I think that when you find your therapist and you're working with them, you have to trust your connection and trust there isn't judgment. There's no shame. There's um, only empathy and their best intention is to help you. Yeah. And if you can trust in that foundation, I think that the therapeutic process will be a whole lot more smooth and helpful for you. I would like to ask Rhonda the same question. What would you say? Oh gosh. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that that's what I say all the time too, right? Is it like, if you don't feel comfortable with your therapist, you're not going to have the experience you need to. And so like finding the therapist that's fit for you. And I, you know, I tell people all the time, ask around, ask friends and family for their therapists and for people that they know. Um, but don't just also think of it as like a one fit all. So like if your sister fits with this therapist and loves her therapist, that may not be a therapist that then is just going to mesh with you and that's okay. Um, so I think that's one part. I think the second part is take the pressure off. Like I always tell clients in our sessions, like therapy is so unique because there's no structure. I mean, there is kind of as the back end, right. For us as clinicians, but really when I'm sitting with you, like this is genuinely your space. So if you come in and you just had a hell of a day and you need to vent, 
I honestly want to be that person that you come to. So don't come in with an agenda or, you know, feeling like you by week five, you need to be on a certain level with your clinician, like just allow it to be what it is and, and allow us to guide that for you. But knowing you have the freedom to come in to be like, no, this is what I want to focus on today. And I'm probably going to be like, awesome, cool. Like, let's talk about it. Um, And then you have, you know, I say that, and then I always second guess, because then you have clients that recognize like, like I'm what's considered a realist therapist. And so I push you and I can be more confrontational with you by pushing you and challenging you. Um, because that's what I'm here to do where I know other therapists. Yeah. And we've talked about this, right? Like you and I are not coddlers. We do not hold clients and, and do it for them. Um, and so I think that's one thing is knowing your style as a client, if you just need someone to nurture you and coddle you and hold you through this awesome, but find that therapist, that's going to do it. Um, if you want to be challenged and pushed, then find the therapist to do that as well. Um, but taking the pressure off and just feeling safe to do, I think are the two kind of rules of therapy and obviously being honest and open. I know like I've only ever had a handful of clients to where like on my side, things weren't meshing up. Or there was one extreme case that I had a long time ago where the client's mom actually contacted me and was like, Hey, so he's been lying to you. And I had seen this client, I think up for like a year and he had lied so, so well that it was like believable stories and, and believable timelines and all of these things. And his mom was like, no, he doesn't have a girlfriend. He's never had a girlfriend. This didn't happen. That didn't happen. And so I remember being like, how did I get ghosted? Like, I don't understand how I just got bullshitted for an entire year as a therapist who calls people out all the time. Um, and so I think that's one thing ever since I've been very adamant and I am vocal about of in my sessions, like, if you're not going to be honest with me, why are you here? Because at the end of the day, like, I don't care if you lie or you're truthful to me, but it's not going to help you, right? Like you're not here for mine. I'm here to help you. So if you're not going to be honest, there's limited things I can do for you. So I went on a rant, but those would be those, like, that would be from my side. Sorry. (laughs) Just like one thing led to another. And I was like, no, that too. (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. If you're not going to be open and honest, then you're not going to get anything out of therapy. Yeah. What would you say from like a clinician side? What are some of those things like that you have found that makes therapy really, really hard with a client, like barriers that they're bringing in or just certain things that, you know, make the therapeutic process so much harder? Well, I'm speaking of being, you know, dishonest or not being open. Um, sometimes it feels like when you're really pulling teeth to get information or to get answers or to get um, them to problem solve on their own, that makes things really difficult. Um, I hate that. Those are make the make those really make hard. me feel like I am incompetent as a therapist, where I'm like. I don't, I just feel like I'm like questioning you and I feel like I'm bombarding you with a hundred questions in this half hour because <laughs> you're not like giving me details. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't yeah. even recognize uh, it. And that Sometimes really clients hard. don't recognize that I'm like, I'm really trying here. Give me something. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know. You're like, cool. Please give me more than three <laughs> words. <laughs> yeah. When somebody comes in with a victim mindset and doesn't take responsibility for their behaviors, emotions, or their actions. And um, then it puts us in a really difficult situation that we can't help. Um, And that puts up a huge barrier in therapy. Mm, I'd agree. Yeah. 
with both of those things. I think one of the barriers for me is just also, again, going back to like, if you have that client that either maybe your skill set isn't appropriate for, or it's a diagnosis that you are not as educated about something in those regards, like as a therapist, I know I push you guys as staff of like, be honest with yourselves. Like if this client's making you uncomfortable, you also aren't doing them what they deserve, right? Like you're not going to be able to help them if there's barriers or, um, such as like education or things like that, that are preventing you from giving the best of you as well. Well, you know, if we, if you're also talking along those lines, when we talk about counter-transference, if there's personal issues mm-hmm. along those lines, when, um, which um, for us means when there's a personal conflict of interest, which means that there's oh, yeah. something that um, could prevent us from being the best professional to treat somebody too. Yeah. Um, have you ever had a client get really mad at you during session? Some, it's happened to me a handful of times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and usually like, I mean, I feel like it could be good or bad, right? Like you have a client upset because you're setting both those boundaries, or it could be good in the sense that like you're, you're evoking that emotion out of them and you're, you're forcing them to be comfortable while being uncomfortable. Um, yeah, I've had a couple, a handful of times where the anger was, um, unintentionally was directed at me. It wasn't supposed to be directed at me. They were angry at somebody else, but it came directed at me. Um, but being set with healthy boundaries, (laughs) then it was redirected back to where it needed to be. And then it was dealt with in an appropriate way. Um, and then as a lot of people know, when we're in EMDR, anger gets exploded sometimes Mm -hmm. when we're reprocessing memories. And so sometimes it comes out as if it's angry at me or at the therapist. Um, but yeah, I've had a couple of people get angry at me in specific, but it happens. Yeah. (laughs) You were human. Not often. Yeah. 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 Not very often. But it's normal for people to get frustrated, especially with us. Cause I, that's one thing from my side, I hate doing too, is like when we have to be those, like kind of the quote unquote bad person of like talking to them about something that, you know, is going to make them upset or give them a diagnosis that they're not going to maybe be happy of. Like there's awkward positions for us to be in, even as that professional. And I think that our position is worse than a doctor because typically, right. A doctor, like you don't get to know as personal as you get to know us. And so for us, if I've been seeing you for a year, I know you pretty well. So it's really uncomfortable sometimes for me, if I have to bring a hard topic up or give you boundaries that, you know, and have that conversation I know isn't comfortable for us, but clients, you know, get mad and they take it so personal to where it's, you know, it comes down to like clinically and professionally that sometimes we don't want to talk about things we have to talk about with you either. And it's not comfortable for us. Yeah. And I hope that, you know, for a lot of, a lot of the time for my clients, whenever we have to talk about something that's really difficult and I know that it can bring up a lot of strong emotions and where they can be really upset with me and frustrated with me that they also still at the end of the day, always know that I have their best interests at heart. Yeah. And in hopes that that can help ease some of it. And then we always come up with problem solving at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Cause I'm not just going to drop this bomb or I'm just going to drop this bad news and then just leave it there. We're not just yeah. going to, I'm not just going to leave it out there to dry. We're going to do something with it. Yeah, no, I agree. 
Okay. So I'm going to switch topics just slightly because I think it's important um, because I think there's a lot of confusion and this is something that unless you've been to therapy, you probably have only had the conversation. Um, Will you explain like for us what mandated reporting is? So if a client comes in, if I was questioning again, like self-harming or things like that, um, I know stereotypical, right? And that so many people are afraid to disclose things like that because they feel like we're just going to pick up the phone and put them in the psych ward. So explain to listeners like what mandated reporting is and giving maybe some various examples of what that looks like in session. So mandated reporting, it's a, it's scary and we understand that we understand that a lot of people get really scared that you're going to get locked up in the cuckoo's nest, right? Um, I hear that one a lot, or I'm going to, you're going to think I'm crazy. Um, mandated reporting has a lot of different very variations to it, but if we're talking about self-harm and we're talking about suicidal ideation, then we're talking about different levels. Um, if someone comes in and they're talking about self-harm, what I want to know is the intent behind the self-harm. Is, are you using the self-harm as a coping skill or are you using the self-harm as an intent to end your life? Now, when we're talking about as an intent to end your life, then I continue to ask you a series of, of questions that I want to know how serious you are about your intent to end your life. Now, the more serious I believe you are about your intent to go home and end your life, then the more serious those, those questions become and the more we need to talk about precautions in order to protect yourself. So if it becomes down to the point where I'm really concerned that if I were to send you home that I wouldn't be ever see you again, then we would have to be talking about getting other people professionally involved, which may mean contacting the hospital. Um, or, do, I mean, does that answer some of the question? Yeah, what happens if a client, no, I think that you did answer your question. Um, and I think it would that, like, thank you for separating like suicidal ideation versus self-harm because I think people enmesh the two of those together often. Um, what if a client comes in and they disclose like unhealthy coping skills, such as like, if I disclose to you that I know that I'm drinking a lot and I drank last night and I got in the car and drove home when it comes to things like unhealthy coping skills or addictions or like illegal substances, if I smoke marijuana and I disclose that to you, what, what is your place with reporting for those things? The only times that I am required to report are if you are at risk of harming yourself, which is what we just talked about. If you are at risk of harming somebody else, so homicidal ideation, or if you are at risk, if you have been harming a child, or someone who is at risk, who is either elder or of special needs, right? So four. if I was, so if I was a client and I, that was one of the barriers holding me back from making an appointment with you is that I know I'm an alcoholic and I know that I drink to cope. What would you say to me, or maybe in our first session in regards to that? Like, is that something you're going to lecture me on? Is that something you're going to call my family and turn me in? Are you going to give me an intervention? How would you handle that? These are not something that I can break confidentiality on. These are definitely concerns that I have in order to like, I have concerns about your safety and I have concerns about the public safety, but it's not something that I can break confidentiality on. So it remains between you and I. Now, does that mean that you and I aren't going to talk about it? Absolutely not. Does it mean it's off the table? Absolutely not. Does it mean we're going to talk about it? Hell yes. Yeah. But it's something I like as a client, if I'm smoking marijuana, if I'm drinking excessively, 
it's something like that, that I can have the assurity of coming into therapy, talking about for you and knowing that I'm still going to be safe and not in trouble with, unless, you know, the other things. Okay. Absolutely. What about, because I know this is a heated topic. Um, what about if I'm a client out there who is now engaging in like ketamine treatments or any of the psychedelic assisted therapies is, does that fall within the same mandated reporting? Or is that something that again, it's just talked about in session and my confidentiality is kept safe. I was kept safe and confidential. I love that. And I think (laughs) that's a conversation. I don't like, I ask you that because I think that's also going back to kind of the questions of therapy. There's so many clients that I've seen where, you know, in the initial assessment, it's part of our checklist that I have to ask, are you drinking? Are you engaging in substances? Is there anything else that I need to know about that way? And more often than not, sadly, I think clients are not as honest as they need to be with that because they have the fear that either A, they're going to be turned in or A, we're going to call someone of their family and disclose it. Or in the sense that like they are going to get a lecture or they're going to get treated like they do in residential where we're just going to like tell them like, Kate, you need to be sober. You need to stop drinking in order to do this. You need to stop smoking marijuana. And I know, I mean, we're not supposed to have our own bias, but I know that there's plenty of offices in Utah that have their personal opinions of all of these things. Um, But I think it's, it's a conversation that needs to be normalized because it is coming, especially with the psychedelics people are engaging in this more and more. People are getting their medical marijuana card. People are using marijuana to help with their anxieties more and more. And I think that that's something people really need to know is that just because you're engaging in unhealthy coping skills doesn't mean that when you sit down on my couch and disclose that, that I'm going to turn around and turn you in or report you or file a police report. And so I think it's, I hope that it's comforting for people out there listening that if these are some of your barriers, knowing that like you are safe and you're not, we don't just pick up the phone and try to get you in trouble. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to switch topics completely because the one thing that we haven't touched on are your specialties as a clinician. Um, So Kate also, so she sees our, we call them littles in our office, which are the little kids ages from like five to eight, nine ish ages. And then you also see adults. Um, For those of you that don't know or haven't ever been to our office, Kate's room is my favorite because she has a playroom and it's the coolest Mm -hmm. little playroom we have. But for you, Kate, like, why did you pick becoming a child therapist? Well, so I, well, upon graduation, I I was very eclectic. I loved working with lots of different areas, but, um, all throughout going through college and all of my jobs that I worked all did I all I worked with kids and all of my dogs that's what I'm trying to say <laughs> let me try. let me answer that question again <laughs> all of my jobs that I worked all up until graduating through grad school were working with children um I knew I didn't want to work with children full-time completely but I knew I needed a part of that working with kids in therapy So I love having them as a part. They're kind of like my break in my day. They are so fun and they're so magical. They view the world in a totally different way than adults do. And they are just, there's nothing like viewing the world, like viewing the world through the eyes of a child. There's nothing like it. So. And you're so passionate about it. Like even talking about it, you just lit up and smiled. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, they're fun. (laughs) 
What, so what are the typical reasons a parent usually brings a kid to you? Um, is there any like common things? Um, I usually see kids kind of as sixes. Sometimes it's for trauma. And then the other half of kids is just because of emotional dysregulation for kids who, who are having a hard time with like emotional um, temper tantrums, who are having a hard time managing their emotions. They're having a hard time at school with social skills. Um, ADHD is pretty common, things like that. Okay. And you, I mean, for the most part with the kids, those are the best clients, right? Because their treatment plans look completely different than what an adult, just based on like the interventions and the interactions that you do with them. Um, but typically like, what does a child like play session look like? What are you doing when you have a kid in therapy? Well, for, I would say for each of my kids, because I see kids that are so young, each of my kids all start around the same type of thing. I do a lot of sand play and a lot of emotional identification. So I have one of those, I don't know if you are around the same age as Rhonda and I, you probably grew up with an emoji face chart on your fridge, or you grew up seeing um, a sheet with just all of the different faces and all of the different emotions. You probably grew up with one of these. And so I work with every single time a kid comes in, we identify different emotions that we felt throughout the week what it meant, what we did, what made us feel that way, what can we do when we feel that way. And so kids can practice identifying the emotions. And then I help parents learn to identify those emotions too. Um, That's a huge part of child therapy is helping parents learn to identify their own emotions and helping them help their child identify their emotions. Because when a child comes in and they are so emotionally dysregulated, they don't know what emotions are. You have to imagine they're dealing with really big emotions in such little tiny little bodies and they don't know what to do with it and they don't know how to communicate it. And so you have to start with the very basics. And so a lot of the times that's where I start with kids. Um, and then we go from there. Just depending on like what they're coming in for, what you need to assess and work with them for. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, like, how do your kids respond? Do they love it? I mean, I know that they love it because I see the kids reactions and half the time, like, this is not even an exaggeration. I have seen it where the kids walk into the office and they like, cannot wait for you to come get them and for you, them to go back in your office. It's, it's like the cutest oh. thing for them to be so excited, which is the opposite reaction we get usually from the adult clients. Cause they don't want us <laughs> to come get them where the kids are like, Kate, are we going to play today? Yeah, they're very excited. We have a usually a routine when we go back to my office, they take off their shoes and then I have a visual timer that we set the timer for how long we're in session for. And I have to set it a few minutes short because then once the timer goes off, we have to deal with the sadness of leaving, which we have Mm -hmm. to take time to like sit down and be sad and put our shoes back on before we can have a, like a ritual, which is like pretending like we're bunnies or we're a train leaving the office. So I didn't know that. That's adorable. It's very opposite of what we do with adults. Adults are very ready to leave my office. Yeah. I'm like, I don't think I ever have a client tell me how sad they are. They have to leave my office. (laughs) Yeah. Not my kids. They're sad. No, 
I love that. I, I, I do love your office and I love the passion you have with the kiddos, but, and that's totally biased because I see it all the time and I see the little kids and they're like just the little joy for us because everything else is so heavy with the adults. And so it's like a little bit of joy that comes into the office because they're just, yeah, their world is like Alice in Wonderland where everything is just imaginary and this fantasy and there's no evil in the world yet. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And they have no idea the hard work that they're actually doing and the amount of improvement that they make within a short period of time is pretty, is pretty incredible in my eyes. Yeah. What would you say are some of the big warning signs for either like school leaders or parents that, that you would look for, or, you know, be cautious of for them to come to therapy? So some big warning signs would be drastic changes in, um, in behaviors um, in emotions. I mean, and I'm talking like pretty drastic as therapists, we can recognize pretty minute changes, but when we're talking with, um, school leaders and we're talking, um, caregivers and parents, I'm talking pretty drastic new temper tantrums, um, nightmares, um, self-harming behaviors, um, lack of interest or apathy, lack of interest in doing things that normally would make them happy. Um, things like that. Um, regression in, and sorry, when I mean regression, I mean acting younger than they normally are. And I don't mean, <clears throat> I don't mean play. I mean, in, for example, finding a baby blanket that they haven't had since they were four years old and they're now eight, um, sucking on their thumb, um, where somebody who has been potty trained for four years is now wetting the bed or is having accidents um, multiple times throughout the day, things like that. Yeah. And I'd say like inappropriate behaviors, right. Just in yeah. addition to that, like inappropriate, meaning that like, you know, your kid for the most part is very well behaved. They know consequences. And so like reactions such as like throwing things or hitting people or, you know, getting like un in undressed inappropriately, things like that, that just aren't like quote unquote normal for their day-to-day -day life their day-to-day -day routine or, you know, appropriate for their environment that they be, that they're in. Mm -hmm. What are normal conversations that you have, like with the parents, especially if you have a kid that's coming in for some serious trauma work or, you know, potential, like if there's a DCFS case involved or anything like that, what are typically your kind of sessions like, or how are you guiding the parents in those types of sessions? Um, well, first time, first of all, I, have a lot of it is reassuring a parent is that um as parents and as adults we're we often project a lot of our own fears or our own insecurities onto children and so we have to be careful that we're holding that parents are doing their own work on their own because kids are extremely extremely resilient and we can do a lot of the work as, a ch as their children and they can make massive amounts of improvement in a very short period of time. And they can do really well as long as a parent is doing their own work and they're not continuing to put additional trauma or pressure or um, continuing to have unnecessary conversations with the child on them when they've already done their work. Mm -hmm. So it's important for a parent to be doing a lot of their own work on their own while I'm working with a child um reassuring a parent that a child is resilient that this means 
nothing for their child for their child's future that this is just something that we have to work through for right now um patience is one for the kids they have to remember that they are going through really big things especially when they're going through trauma they're going through really big adult things with really big feelings and really tiny human bodies where they don't have the same um type of communication abilities that we have they don't know how to express it they don't have the same coping skills so they just need time and they need patience um and that also to remember that a lot of what they're going through at the same time is developmentally appropriate so mm. a lot of the times parents come in and they're concerned about what you know we when when i was talking about warning signs i'm talking about extreme behaviors a lot of the times parents will come in with with some concerns but a lot of it is developmentally appropriate and so not to read into a lot of behaviors that kids have as something really big when really it's this is a part of the kids playground this is a part about a kid has to learn how to test the playground in order to learn the rules mm. of the world and so learning patience and learning how to know when to look at a warning sign versus how to realize what is part of just developmentally appropriate. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, I think, well, yeah. And I think that's where I was going to say too, of like, I've worked with, when I used to work with kids, that was a conversation I had always. And that's something I could give as like advice too, of if there are genuine concerns or those, you know, inappropriate extreme behaviors, go talk to someone, like at least go ask those questions. Um, I know in my like personal experience with working with kids and even some of my friends that like their extreme behaviors happening and they just talk about it and they complain about it to their friends and family, but there's no action to where, you know, it's like, go talk to the professional, bring them in and at least have an assessment and discuss like, is this normal? Is this developmentally appropriate or, or, or are there warning signs? I think I've seen so many times where parents have these things come up, like even if it's just questions, because they really don't know what those developmental signs are, but yet they're just letting the behaviors continue and they become frustrated. So the consequences become worse, but yet they're not having a conversation with anyone or they're giving their own diagnosis. And I think like the big example, you know, we've talked about is that for schools or for sometimes other professionals that aren't licensed clinicians, they're overdiagnosing. So they're like looking at this troublesome kid or this defiant kid. And they're like, Ooh, you have ADHD. Like you need to go to therapy parents. You need to put them in a resource class when it really comes down to either like better following through with the parents or, you know, consistency on the parent side that ultimately to me always leads into like simpler answers, but parents let it go and go and go. And then it becomes so destructive and, and they almost like wait till the last minute where everything is then chaotic for the kid, the family, the parents, the school, everyone involved is then in this state of chaos when it comes down to just asking questions and saying like, Hey, I don't feel like this is normal. It's not part of his routine. Can you give me insight? Can you teach me about this? <laughs> no comment with that one. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> You're okay. Um, okay. And then the other thing when you were talking, I had a thought too of um I can't you worded it so well, but the one thing I wanted to put focus on too was we've all been kids, right? And so we all forget how to be kids. And this is something I talk to all the time, especially when I used to see the littles explaining to their parents, like 
five-year-old little Johnny over here doesn't have life experience. He doesn't have this emotional language. He doesn't know these things. And you can't be frustrated a person if they don't possess the knowledge. And for us as adults, we forget that once we were kids and because of our life experience or because of our language or because of our whatever, we kind of project those expectations onto the kid. And so as a full adult, you can get frustrated that Johnny doesn't know how to express his anger, but then you all, it's kind of an accountability on the parents and caregivers of like, well, what are you teaching them? What is he seeing? But also, have you really taken the time to sit down with Johnny and teach him that language or teach him from your experiences? And when I like kind of rephrased it back to parents in that regard, it makes sense to them. But there's so many times that they're like, why doesn't he just understand? Like he can't be angry and throw things at his brother. It like, have you sat down and told him like, that's not normal. And I think that sometimes parents forget that. And then they bring him to us. Well, you, cause I don't see kids anymore, but they bring him to you as kind of like Kate fix Johnny. He's broken and I don't know what to do. And a lot of the conversations I know come back to parents and how you can support and how you can change that behaviors at home. And this is like one of those common themes too. I always joke, but like, we really don't have this magical wand that we just wave and make things go away. A lot of it is just us teaching them things that, and holding them accountable to do it. Well, and I, you know, I tell people a lot of the time, I really wish that I went to wizardry school and I wish I could just have things better. Right. I really do wish that, um, with kids, oftentimes it becomes kind of past the puck, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's, um, teachers are saying, you know, this kid usually, and typically they will say a boy has ADHD and a girl has anxiety. They look, they, um, they look the same, but they're diagnosed differently to somebody who doesn't know what they look like. So Mm -hmm. for um, somebody who doesn't know how to diagnose, they'll say one or the other and will want a parent to take them to therapy. Um, so you know, a school teacher will pass it to a parent or will say, you need to take them to therapy and the parent will pass them back to the school teacher or will pass them to a therapist and will say, here, fix my kid or fix this kid or fix this problem. But nobody just sits down and says, this is what's going on, right? And when you are at school, we have recess or we have the computers that they have to be sitting at and doing home, doing schoolwork at, right? We're constantly passing these kids to different things. When they're at home, we have the neighborhood kids or they have video games or they have iPads or they have all of these different, all of these different tools that we're kind of just passing these kids along, but we don't just sit down mm-hmm. and teach kids what are the rules of the playground, right? Right. We, yeah. Like you said, we don't sit down with little Johnny and we don't sit down and we explain how do we interact with all of these other kids while also sitting down with all of the other 12 other kids that are at the playground and teaching the rules of the playground right? Yeah. Because everyone's kind of passing a puck. And so sometimes I do get those, you know, parents who kind of come in and say, here's all the problems, fix my kid. Yeah. But that's just not how it works. And right? we see that a lot. And that's one thing we've talked about, right? Like if the parent with our office, at least like you're involved, you're not going to just drop your kid off or your teenager and like call it a day. Like you yeah, can drop them off and have this like a couple sessions to where I don't need you involved. Um, but that's one thing with parents, like if, if you're listening, like be involved in their therapy, ask questions, like you're a big part in this. It's not like we really have this wand that they're coming in and we can just fix them. A, I always say a, they're not broken, but like these behaviors or these concerns, I'm not going to be able to do alone. I'm just here to be that, you know, listening resource for you. But when it comes down to it, like parents and family members can make a world of a difference than really what we can. We're just that person kind of blending all the parts together. 
Any advice you would give for parents that maybe are out there listening or that are looking into putting their kids in therapy? Like what are some of it, what are some of the pieces that you can give a parent to help them through this process? You know, just like how we talked about earlier with um, finding your own therapist is taking the time to make sure that you find out the right fit for between the child and a therapist, but also a parent and a therapist and making sure that everyone feels like it's a good fit. And I spend a lot of the time with the children, but I do spend a period of time with parents. And I think that there should be a good, well-rounded approach. Um, Find a fit that fits good for you when you're looking for a therapist. Um, Every child therapist has, there's lots of different approaches out there and everyone does it differently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So find somebody that works well for you like I said, patience and take their homework home seriously. Um, yeah. A a therapist will send you home with homework and you have to take it seriously. That's the only way that you're going to make improvement. They won't, you can't expect improvement in your child's life with just one hour a week with a therapist. You won't get anywhere. Yeah. Being consistent. And I think more importantly than finding like just a therapist, find a therapist that wants to work with kids. If you have a therapist that's telling you, I don't work with kids or I don't work with this population, you need to listen. Like, and I think that's part of, for my side of like, we're not trying to be disrespectful. It's not the sense that I don't want to help you, but if this isn't my cup of tea, like I'm not going to do anything for your child. I'm going to be, give that in a sense, like a disservice to them. And so yes, finding a therapist you fit with, but finding a therapist that's willing to work with kids and is good at it. Don't just put them in therapy with your therapist that you saw five years ago because you really liked them. Like find that person who is going to make the difference in your family and your kid's life. Which I know is hard because a lot of people actually don't like working with the little kids. So you have, you (laughs) definitely have that specialty that, you know, I think is, is kind of like an anomaly, but I think that's something that, you know, you, for the most part there, there are therapists out there that will do it, even if they have a wait list, you know, if, if you're out there listening, wait, be patient with that and just trust the process that if, you know, if if you waiting six weeks to get into a therapist is going to be the best fit for them, why would you not take that? But everyone's journey is different, but those are, you know, my, my recommendations with it. (laughs) Absolutely. I agree. Okay. Any final words, any final like tips, pointers with therapy, being a client, wanting to be a client, any last words you'd have for people listening? No, I think that I want you guys to all understand that the therapist that's sitting across from you loves you and has so much empathy and understanding and compassion for you. And that's really all we're thinking about when we're sitting across from you. And we just have the best intentions when we're sitting across from you. That's it. Yeah. Thanks for having me with you, Rhonda. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Um, for those of you that are listening, if you are wanting more resources and information for child therapy, um, maybe some resources, I will connect with Kate and get maybe some links and put them in this episode's description. Um, I, again, also will attach Psychology Today's um, link for those of you that are looking for a therapist, if you're wanting more information that way too. And yes, thank you so much for taking your time for doing this. 
Um, thank you for everyone out there listening and supporting. It means the world to me. And I'm going to just leave you with the fact that you are worthy and you are so loved. And there are people, including your therapists out there that love you dearly and think of you so, so highly. And you're worth going to therapy and changing your life and you can do it. So never forget that. And just know you always have a special place in our hearts. Thank you.